0: Well, if we could, uh, this morning with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling, if we could turn back to that portion of scripture that we read, uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, and I'd like us just to walk through this chapter, but if we read again at the beginning, Acts chapter 6 at verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected, I'm sure you've all heard of uh, work experience, or you know what uh, work experience is. If you don't know what work experience is, uh, I don't know if they did it when you were in school, but a work experience, it takes place when you're in, I think it's third or fourth year in school, and you go and work for a week in order to gain some experience of the working world, hence the name work experience. But you, in, in that sense, you exchange the classroom for the workplace, And instead of learning theory, uh, you go and learn by hands-on experience. And you find out what it's like to have a day or or even a week in the life of a nurse or a teacher or a pharmacist or a shopkeeper or a builder or a mechanic. And during that week of work experience, you learn firsthand uh, something of what it's like to be part of that working environment. I remember my work experience was at Kiwi's Garage in Stornoway. It was a week in the life of a mechanic, which wasn't for me, hence the reason I became an electrician. But the experience was good, because instead of reading about the experience from a book, you were faced with live situations, and you learned what it was like on the ground. And you know, in many ways, that's what happens in Acts chapter 6. Because the book of Acts the whole book, it's, uh, the author is giving to us, the author Luke, he's giving to us a window into the life of the early church. But up until this point, in the first five chapters, Luke has been giving this historical account of the opposition that the church faced almost on a daily basis. But in this chapter, in chapter six, Luke doesn't just remind us of the opposition that the church was facing. Luke also tells us of the daily issues which the church had to deal with. He doesn't just tell us about what went on outside. He also tells us here what was going on inside. And similar to work experience, Luke doesn't just give to us the theory of church. He gives to us first-hand experience of the challenges that the early church were confronted with. And he even describes the experience and what the church did. He, He describes what they did in order to address all these issues that they were facing. And so we could actually say that Acts chapter 6 is a day in the life of the early church. Acts chapter 6 is a day in the life of the early church. But as we said before, when we read and study the book of Acts, and as we go through it week by week, we have to see that the church in the first century, it should always be viewed as this biblical example and for us as the church In the 21st century. Because what we learn even in this chapter. Is that the 1st century church. They cared for the physical needs of their community. As well as the spiritual needs of their community. And that's what we as the 21st century church. Have to take from this chapter. And so I'd like us just to see that in this chapter. It's a day in the life of the early church. It's a day in the life of the early church. And I want us to look at this chapter just under three very simple headings. Starving, serving, and speaking. Starving, serving, and speaking. So first of all, starving. we we'll look at verse 1. We're told, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Before Luke even speaks about starving, he opens his chapter by reminding us that since the birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit came in power, since the birth of the church, the church has been growing rapidly. As you know, the membership of the early church had just started with the 11 apostles. There were only 11 apostles after Judas Judas Iscariot had defected by betraying Jesus But then after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we're told that there were 120 church members gathered together for a prayer meeting. Church members at a prayer meeting. That's where they should always be. But when the Holy Spirit came upon the church in power, when the Spirit came at the day of Pentecost, we're told that the Apostle Peter, he stood up and 3,000 souls were saved. You could say that there were 3,000 professions of faith in one day. But after that, the church didn't stop growing because the the days after Pentecost were told that these new converts, they devoted themselves. They were committed Christians. They devoted themselves to gathering together for teaching, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread and for prayer. And we're told that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As the church gathered together, there was more and more gathering with them. And the early church, it was continuing to grow rapidly. And it continued to grow as the gospel was preached. Because we're told even at the beginning of chapter 4, that those who listened to the apostles preach, those who listened to the message of Jesus and the resurrection, were told at the beginning of chapter 4 that the number of men who believed was about 5,000 a number that didn't include women and children, which would have, in many ways, it would have brought the total to at least 15,000. And so by the time we come to chapter six, in only a space of a few months, the the membership of the early church has risen from its starting 11 to at least 25,000. And 25,000 is more than double the membership of the Free Church of Scotland the church was growing rapidly but you know one of the marks of the early church it wasn't just their growth it was their care for of the spiritual and physical needs of their community because we're told that the church as the church grew they cared for one another and they looked out for one another because they loved one another and the church sought to help anyone in need the church was looking out for those in their community In fact, at the end of chapter 4, it says there was not a needy person among them, because (laughs) everything was distributed to anyone in need. But of course, as it is today, the church isn't perfect. There were problems, and there were problems of greed in chapter 5 with Ananias Ananias and Sapphira. But as we saw last week at the concluding chapter, uh, in the concluding verse of of chapter 5, We're told that every day in the temple from house to house the church did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Every day the church continued to care for the spiritual needs of their community by preaching the gospel. And every day the church continued to care about the physical needs of their community by helping anyone in need. Every day the church was preaching the gospel and living out the gospel. That's the way the church in the 21st century should be as well. Live, preaching the gospel and living out the gospel. But as we said, the church wasn't perfect. Because, as you know, there is no perfect church. You know, sometimes we can be guilty of looking at the church in the past. Maybe 30 years ago. Or even 150 years ago. Or even the early church itself. We can sometimes be guilty of looking at the church in the past with rose-tinted glasses. But you know, all we have to do is look at history. And it's full of failure. All we have to do is read Paul's letters and discover all the problems that the church was dealing with. And remark uh, it shouldn't be surprising to us that we're still facing the same problems today. In fact, it was the evangelist, Billy Graham, who said that if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You will only spoil it. And it's so true. There's no ch- perfect church. Because the church is not a museum of good people. It's a hospital for the broken. The church is not a museum of good people. It's a hospital for the broken. As many of you know, Alison and I were in Edinburgh for a few days. Uh, we came back last night. But when we came off the train in Waverley, Waverley Station, we just walked along past the Edinburgh Dungeon. And outside the Edinburgh dungeon, there's a huge sign outside it. Sinners welcome. That's what it said. The first thing I thought was, that's what should be on our door. That's what should be on the church door. Sinners welcome. Because the church, it's not a museum of good people. It's a hospital for the broken. And the reality is, we are all broken people, living broken lives in a broken world. And yet the gospel comes to us with healing and help. And that's what we see here. The challenge that the early church was facing here was that there was this complaint. There was a complaint by the Hellenists that the Hebrews were neglecting the Hellenist widows in their community and the widows they were starving. Now the Hellenists, they were Greek-speaking Jews. They were from from outside Jerusalem. The Hebrews They were native Jewish Christians. They spoke Hebrew and they spoke in Aramaic and Hebrew and they lived in and around the city of Jerusalem. But the Hellenists, they were complaining against the Hebrews because they felt that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. The Hellenists thought that their widows were being discriminated against because, well, they were in the minority. They were from outside Jerusalem. And, you know, as the church grew, the Hellenists, they felt that they were being marginalised. They felt they were being pushed to the one side and their vulnerable widows were being neglected. Of course, I don't believe that it was intentional because it's quickly resolved and rectified. But, you know, even what we're told here, it should remind us of what can often happen in a congregation where people... They are unintentionally unintentionally marginalised. They're left to the side. They're they're left to go unnoticed, under the radar, even forgotten. Sometimes I feel that maybe with those who are housebound, those who are unwell, or even those who come to church now and again. Sadly, these people sometimes they just drift and they stop coming to church altogether. what What do we do with them? Do we just leave them hoping that they'll come back to church by themselves? No. Do we gossip about them and say, well, they were here one week and now they're gone the next? No. Do you tell the minister hoping that he'll go and look look after them and go and find them? Well, tell me. But you go first. You go and find out what's going on. You get in touch with them. You phone them. You ask them if they're okay. You invite them to come to church. If the Lord has put them on your heart and your mind, you go to them. You ask them. And you know, I'm sure that we can all think of of someone who hasn't been to church for a while that we should really go and speak to. And speaking to them, this is the thing, speaking to them would not be an invasion of privacy. It would be a sign that you care. It would be a sign that you have a concern for their soul and even a concern for them. And if there is someone that comes to your mind, maybe you should make a point of speaking to that person this coming week. But you know, what we ought to learn from the example of the early church is that they viewed their problems not as obstacles. They saw them as opportunities. They saw every problem not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. Because the early church, they saw the obstacle of these widows starving. And they saw it as an, op- they saw it as an opportunity for serving. The early church saw the obstacle of widows starving as an opportunity for serving the church. And that's what I want us to see secondly. So starving and then serving. Serving. Look at verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. When the early church was faced with a problem, they didn't cover it up. Rather, they saw their problems not as obstacles, but as opportunities opportunities to serve in the church and to serve their community and even move forward more with the gospel. And, you know, by taking the opportunity, the apostles, they called the whole church to come together for what was a congregational meeting. And the apostles, they state the problem. They tell the church what the issue really is that's facing them. And we're told that in in verse 2. The apostles say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, the apostles, they didn't say this because they, they were too proud to serve tables. Or that they thought that distributing food to to widows was below their pay grade. Not at all. The apostles knew that as elders in the church, their primary calling was prayer and preaching the word. But their greatest fear, their greatest fear was that in focusing their attention upon serving tables, they were neglecting what their primary calling was. The ministry of word and prayer. And the end result would have actually been, if they had carried on, the end result would have been that the church and the community would have been physically starving and spiritually starving. Nobody would be satisfied. And that's what the early church didn't want. They didn't want to neglect providing physical and spiritual care for their community. And you know, with this, the apostles, they're actually humbly acknowledging and even confessing they can't do it on their own. That's what they're saying. They had tried. They tried to do it. But they were trying to do too much with too little resources. And the outcome was that they had failed. They had inadvertently and unintentionally neglected valuable people in their community. They had neglected the Hellenist widows. And maybe others as well. And my friend, when we try to do too much with too little resources... The result will be that we're either in danger of breakdown or burnout. And you know, it was D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, he once said, It is better to put ten men to work rather than trying to do the work of ten men. Seems very simple, doesn't it? It's better to put ten men to work rather than trying to do the work of ten men. And that's what the apostles sought to do. They gathered the church together for this congregational meeting in order to elect elect seven deacons to serve in the church. And these seven deacons, they were to be set apart by the church for being servants. That's what the word deacon means. It means servant. And these seven men, they were the first deacons in the early church. Who were carefully and prayerfully elected and appointed in the early church. We're told in verse 3, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Appointing deacons, you could say it was a wise move on the part of the apostles. Because as they repeat and reaffirm in verse 4, their primary calling as elders in the church was to prayer prayer. And to the ministry of the word. And you know as we consider how the early church dealt with the issues they faced. We're gaining hands on experience. Of what the function of an elder and a deacon really is. And when I say elder. I include myself in that. Because I'm an elder. You call me the minister. But I am an elder. I'm a teaching elder. I've been called and trained to teach. Whereas The elders who sit in the box and throughout the congregation, they are ruling elders who have a prayerful and spiritual oversight over our congregation. And the function of an elder, the primary function of an elder, is to pray for you. The primary function of an elder is to pray for you and the people in our congregation and to minister the word of God to you and to those In our congregation. Those who aren't here today. And you know we're to do that. By preaching. By visiting. By fellowship. By bible studies. By evangelising. The ministry of the word and prayer. That's the role of an elder. That's the primary calling of an elder. To pray for you. And to minister God's word to you. Now the reason deacons were appointed. It's not so that elders can sit back and do nothing. Not at all because, as I've said before, the office of an elder or a deacon, it's not about, it's not about status. It's always about service. And that even impl- applies to the church member. It's not a membership of status. Never view it as a membership of status. It's a membership of service. You're coming into the voluntary army of Christ's church to serve. We're not here as consumerists. We're here to get our sleeves rolled up and our hands dirty. That's the purpose of membership in the church. Service is what's at the heart of Christianity. Serving is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus himself says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Therefore, the reason the early church, the reason they appointed elders and deacons and had members was to ensure that what was neglected would be addressed. And what was lacking would be done better. And needless to say, the first century church have left us, the 21st century church, they have left us an example to follow. So that we too will ensure that what is being neglected will be addressed. And what we might be lacking in will be done better. Al Mohler, in his commentary, he's got a wonderful commentary on the book of Acts. And he says, the apostles appointed deacons to ensure that the congregation would have its physical needs taken care of, while ensuring that they themselves would be able to continue to give focused attention to the ministry of the word, so that everyone in the congregation might be spiritually nourished. And you know, that's the purpose of the church. And that's the purpose of our congregation. And that's, even that's why we have on the back of our intimations, Every week there's an intimation for you which says the pastoral and spiritual care of the congregation is of primary importance. Therefore if there is anyone in the congregation who is ill or taken into hospital or would like a pastoral visit or even to be prayed for. Please inform the minister or I should say inform one of the elders. And you know I want to stress this to you. It's not just there for show. It's there because I don't want anyone in this congregation to be neglected or marginalized or think that they're unimportant. Because you're not. You are not unimportant. You are precious. Precious first and foremost in the sight of God, but precious to us as elders. And so is your soul. You are precious. And I want to stress this to you. Of course, as elders and deacons, we're not perfect. Don't ever get that idea. We don't know everyone's situation, which is why communication is so important. Let us know. Never assume that we know. Never assume that somebody else has told me, or somebody else has told the elders, or that even the elders have told me. Never assume. Communicate with one another. As the saying goes, there's no I in team. But the acronym of team is, together everyone achieves more. Together everyone achieves more. And I must stress the everyone because it's not just the elders and the deacons who are actively serving in the congregation. It's everyone. We're all here to work together. Everyone. Together, everyone achieves more. And you know, it's just, it's something that needs to be addressed. We need to work together. This is the the important thing. And you know, the the example that the early church is actually setting for us, they're reminding us That everyone is to work together for the communication, concern, and care of one another. That's what the early church are teaching us this morning. Everyone is to work together in the communication, concern, and care of one another. Because that's what it means to be serving. But the last thing we can see here from the example of the early church is speaking. Speaking. So we've looked at starving, serving, and speaking. Speaking, look at verse 5. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient. To the faith. When the early church gathered together in order to ensure that they would provide both physical and spiritual care for their community, they elected and they set apart these seven men, seven deacons, seven servants who were full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. But the thing is, we don't know much about these seven men because apart from Stephen, whom we'll look at in chapter 7 a bit more. He was the first martyr in the early church. We don't know much else apart from about these other seven men, apart from their names. <laughs> their names, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Permanes, and Nicolaus. Apart from their names, we don't know much about them. We don't know what they did. We don't know who they, who they were. We don't know where they were from. We don't know how they served. We don't even know what influence they had in the early church and even the influence they, they were in their community. But you know the thing is, my friend, we don't need to know. We don't need to know much about them. It's not necessary for, for us to know how these men served the Lord. We don't need a historical account of everything these men did. Because these deacons, they, they weren't seeking to make a name for themselves. They didn't want to be seen. They didn't even want to be known for what they were doing. I you know, that's the way it always should be. Because as we said, it's not about status. It's not about being seen. It's all about service. And our service should be carried out silently and secretly. Because as Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, your heavenly Father who sees in secret shall reward you openly. So it's not about status. It's not about being seen. It's about service. And our service should always be carried out silently and even secretly. And you know the reward of their service. The reward of these, te- these seven deacons. Was that as they all worked together. We're told in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly. The church grew. The, ch- the church grew even more. And you know that's what it's all about because the church exists for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. And that's the example of the first century church for us. They have set for us this great example that as a congregation we exist for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. That's our primary purpose. We exist for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. But as we move to the conclusion of this chapter and I'll bring this to a conclusion we see yet another knockdown we saw knockdowns last Lord's Day we saw that the church was repeatedly knocked down and knocked back for presenting the truth of the gospel but through it all the church learned as we were saying last week the church learned that getting knocked down in life is a given but getting up and moving forward is a choice and that's again what we see here that the church did When they were knocked down, they didn't stay down. They got back up again and they sought to move forward with the gospel. And that's what one of these newly ordained deacons did. We're told that Stephen, who's described in this chapter as a man full of faith. He's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's a man full of grace and power. And he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So needless to say, Stephen was this godly man and he was a Christian example in his community. And because of that, he faced opposition from others. We're told in verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, the freedmen, they were this group of Jewish slaves who had been freed uh, by the Romans. And they formed their own synagogue. They became their own worshipping people, the, the freed men, And they had their own synagogue in Jerusalem. And these men were told they tried to dispute with Stephen about the gospel. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. And you know, my friend, what I see here is that when Stephen was confronted and challenged and maybe even provoked by those who opposed the gospel, what we have to take home with us is how he responded to their opposition. Because Stephen, he didn't respond with aggression. He didn't respond with arrogance. He didn't even respond with antagonism. So when Stephen spoke about Jesus and the gospel, he graciously And faithfully, but powerfully, he spoke to them about Jesus. And even when they did to Stephen what they did to Jesus by making false accusations against him. We're told that in verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses. Even when they did to Stephen what they did to Jesus. Stephen You know, he responded in such a Christ-like manner. He did as the Apostle Peter says in his letter. To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's what Stephen did. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to Jesus, who judges justly. And we'll continue this further when we come to chapter 7 and see uh, Stephen's speech. But what I want us just to leave with this morning is that Acts chapter 6 is a day in the life of the early church. It's a day in the life of the early church. And what we learn from the experience of the church in the first century is that as a church in the 21st century, we need to be a church that cares for the physical needs of our congregation and also the spiritual needs of our congregation. We are are to be a church, a 21st century church that loves one another, that cares for one another That bears the burdens of one another, that looks out for one another, where no one is to be left on the side or marginalized, but everyone is to be made special because they are special in the sight of God and their soul is precious. So, as a 21st century church, we need to learn from the example of this first century church so that we too will grow. And continue to move forward with the gospel. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord our gracious God. We give thanks to thee for the church of Jesus Christ. That he is the king and he is the head of it. And Lord help us to serve as a body. To work together. To work as hand and foot and arm. To work like a body. Serving one another loving one another and ultimately serving and loving our great Saviour, Jesus Christ. Lord, bless us, we pray. Bless, Lord, those who may feel left out, that we would love them, that we would plead with them to come to this Jesus and find rest for their soul. Oh, Lord, encourage us then, we pray. Bind us together and go before us in all things, keeping our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author And the finisher of our faith. Cleanse us we pray. For we ask it in Jesus name. And for his sake. Amen. We're going to bring our service to a conclusion. This morning by singing in Psalm 133. Psalm 133. It's on page 424. In the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 133, it's a Psalm that reminds us of the unity of God's people, and how the church is to work together. And when the church works together, there is blessing. Behold, how good a thing it is, and how becoming well, together such as brethren are in unity to dwell, like precious ointment on the head that down the bearded flow, in Aaron's beard and to the skirts, did off his garments go, as Herman's Jew, the Jew that doth. On Zion hills descend, for there the blessing God commands, life that shall never end. We'll sing the whole psalm to God's (laughs) praise. of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore.